Let's pray. Father, that is, that is our prayer, that you would continue to speak uh, to your people this morning through the word that you've given to us. We've been reminded, Lord, this morning um, in Sunday school of all the those that have come before us that fought hard, stood upon the truth, laid down their lives in some cases, so that the scriptures, the vehicle of your voice, would go out, that we might be able to possess it and hold it within our hands, to hear from you every time we open this book. And we're thankful, God, for your preserving work of your word. We're thankful for your preserving work for your ch of your church. And it's our desire, Lord, to hear from you this morning. Give us eyes to see, give us hearts to hear, give us minds that are able to understand the truth of your word would illuminate our thinking to such a great degree, God, that it would cause real change and growth within us, conformity into the image of Christ, to think that when your word goes out, God, you are speaking, and when you speak, you create, you change, and, and that's what it is that you do um, this morning until the day that your glory fills the earth and your church is finished and completely built. We will continue to stand upon your word. We will continue to preach your word. We will continue to speak your word in truth and love to one another. We will continue to use the gifts that you've given to us so that your word may go out in its fullness uh, for your glory and for the good of those who are willing to listen, those people whom you are calling to yourself. And so, as we've gathered this morning, Father, we gather to hear your word. Um, give us the humility, the sobriety, the joy that's necessary to hear your word and to receive it and to live in it and grow from it. We thank you, Lord, again for today and this time this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we are... Glad to be here to worship together this morning, and we have been going through our sermon series on the church, and last week we talked about God's plan to preserve the church through discipleship. Today is everyone's favorite topic, discipline, as we get into the other thing that God uses to preserve his church. I think just at the word discipline, some people begin to recoil. And But my hope and prayer this morning is we, get, we look at the scriptures and we see what the scriptures say about discipline, that it, we will um, embrace it the way that God intends for us to embrace it. We will enjoy it. We will receive it. And in doing so, we will grow in it. If your desire is to grow, to be like Christ, to be conformed to him, his, his image, then discipline is an absolute necessity as a part of that process. Um, so if you want to be like Jesus, but you don't want to go through discipline, then you want two separate things. They are one and the same. They go together. God's discipline is the method by which he lovingly shapes us to be like Jesus. And I use that word lovingly um, with emphasis specifically because I think we, do, we tend to look at discipline at, outside of the context of love. And biblically, discipline just it lives it thrives it grows it bears fruit within the context of love and so we want to see that this morning 
In this series, I've tried to not only talk about the nuts and bolts of the church, but I've also tried to captivate our hearts by showing us how Scripture describes God's church as a wonderful place. And I don't want to just talk about elders and deacons and doctrine and truth and gifts and serving and all those things. I'm trying to captivate our hearts for us to love what it is that God loves. And, and because he loves the church, we want to love the church. And because he loves the church, he's put these things in place. He's created the offices out of his love for the church, for the good of the church. And he's given us doctrine and truth out of his love for the church, that we would have it and believe in it and build our lives upon it and grow in our understanding and knowledge of the doctrine that's written in God's word so that we might grow to be like Christ and love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. And he's given us gifts that we might, by the gifting of the Holy Spirit, use our gifts to edify and encourage and build one another up so that we might continue to, to persevere and that's especially important when you consider discipline, because discipline can be hard, and we need the gifting and the edification of one another to continue to encourage us, especially in those moments of specific um, seasons of discipline. Um, but it's, it is hopefully our desire, it's my desire, and hopefully it's been your desire to have your heart be aligned with what it is that God's heart is aligned with, with um, his love for the church. And we keep in mind this specifically as we approach the subject of discipline. And really, discipline is necessary in our lives because sin is a problem. Now, sin is present in our lives. Sin is a problem in our lives. And so we need discipline just by virtue of being humans living in a fallen world, being his redeemed people that live in a world. Look at discipline as God's means of soul care for your life. Everybody wants to have their soul cared for by the Lord, right? Discipline is God's means of soul care. His loving, as Calvin would say, it's his paternal love in action for us. He's taking our wayward hearts and he's paternally, lovingly disciplining us and rerouting our hearts to worshiping him and to doing what it is that we are created to do. And so I hope we see discipline in that way. Uh, Puritan Christopher Love said, Church, the church is the garden of God. The doctrine is the flowers of this garden, and discipline is the hedge. Discipline is what protects the garden and allows it to remain beautiful and wonderful. And he tends to this garden himself personally by planting the flowers of doc doctrine in it to make it beautiful. And discipline is the hedge that protects it, so discipline is good for us. And the four means that we're going to talk about this morning regarding discipline, Wayne mentioned them for us this morning already, and they're the same four that we talked about last week and by way of discipleship. Um, last week we said God disciples us, our church leaders disciple us, we disciple one another, and we disciple ourselves. It's the same that we're going to look at this morning. God disciplines us, our church leaders discipline us. We discipline one another, and we're called to discipline ourselves as well. So as we get into this, we want to first um, look at the way that God disciplines us. There's two texts that we're going to look at primarily. Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn there. Wayne already read for us um, this text for us. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. But if you want to look at a passage of Scripture, one of the most well-known passages of Scripture regarding the discipline of God, you want to look at Hebrews chapter 12. 
Um, what's interesting about what, what the scriptures say here, what Wayne read for us this morning in Hebrews 12, is that there's no specific sin that's mentioned. I think for a lot of Christians, when you start to talk about discipline and God's discipline in our lives, we immediately go to, okay, what specific sin is it that I'm dealing with that God's going to discipline me um, because of or out of or through? And that's certainly a case. We'll look at that in just a moment. But Hebrews chapter 12 is interesting in that he talks about discipline from the perspective of just by mere fact that you are a Christian, you are under the discipline of God. There doesn't have to be any sort of sin that you're struggling with. There doesn't have to be any sort of sin that personally has ensnared you or captivated you. Just by virtue of being a Christian, we are under the loving discipline of God. It is always active in our lives. So again, if you're a Christian and you want to escape the discipline of God, you are wanting two separate things. They are one and the same. Just by virtue of being a Christian, you are always under the loving discipline and caring correction of God in your life. And I don't know about you, but, but that's good. I, I welcome that because like, I know myself. I know that there are parts of me that wants to, wants to break free uh, and my sinful nature to, you know, have its way. And I'm thankful for the loving correction and discipline of God that, that subdues these desires, that corrects me, that keeps me on the course and pursuing him. I'm thankful for his ever-present, constant, loving hand of correction and discipline in my life. And I hope that you are as well. I don't want to go back to the pit that he drew me out of. And I know, as the song says, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to leaving the God I've loved. I'm, I'm prone to looking back like, like Lot's wife, looking back at the city that he had destroyed and delivered me from. I'm, I'm prone to being like that. So I'm thankful for the loving discipline and correction of God that and when I want to turn my head, he goes, no, no, son, don't look that way. Look this way. We're going this direction. Oh, yes, okay. This is good. This is where I'm going. And that's just by virtue of being a Christian. I am under his loving discipline in, in my life in that way. You see in Hebrews chapter 12, he says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And he, so he front loads this idea of talking about discipline with the idea of just struggling with sin. If you are struggling with sin, if you are a sinner and you are prone to struggling with sin, then discipline is in your life and it's good for you. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. So as sons, daughters, in your struggle with sin, discipline is good. And this is what he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Just by virtue of struggling with sin, just by virtue of being a child of his, his plea and his call is to receive and to accept the discipline, the reproving that he gives to us, that he puts in our lives for our good, because he regards us as his children. He would say later on in verse 10 of Hebrews 12, in contrasting God's discipline with our parents' discipline, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them, best to them, our, our fathers, our parents, but he disciplines us for our good 
that we may share his holiness. So he gives us a picture and a vision. What is the purpose for which God is disciplining his children all the time, but to be able to share in his holiness? And he'll go on in verse 14 to say what? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He is without holiness, no one sees the Lord. And his discipline is so that I may share in his holiness. In in essence, his discipline exists to ensure that I might share in his holiness. God has an objective in mind. He knows what he's doing. We do know that God doesn't just randomly do stuff, right? We know that he doesn't just see something happening and respond and go, oh, I think this is what's best and inserts himself. I mean, he lives outside of time. So he always sees all things and knows all things. His hand governs all things. The scripture is clear about this. And so he's purposeful in all these things, especially in his discipline. He's ensuring that I might partake of his holiness. That's what he has his sight set upon, conformity into the image of Christ. We talk a lot at North Hills about what God's purpose is in your life is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. This is one of these passages that and not in those few words, but this is one of these passages that teaches that biblical truth. His discipline exists so that you might share in his holiness. His discipline exists so that you might become like Jesus Christ. You might be conformed into his image. And it's not because you're necessarily doing anything wrong, you've gone off the rails and you're living in sin. It's just by virtue of being his child. His loving paternal care is always active in our lives to shape us and grow us and conform us into the image of Christ. And then he'll say in verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I want to bear fruit in my Christian life. I want to be fruitful. I want to use the gift that God has given to me. I want to glorify him. I want other people to glorify him. If my gift can be used in the life of someone else so that they might bring glory and honor to God, then I would be the most happiest of all people to think that he might use me in that way. And that's what he does through his discipline. It seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you're listening, if you're watching, if you're aware, and you receive God's discipline with the goal of him conforming you to the image of Christ, and you learn, right, you're trained by it, then it will yield the fruit, this peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. And that's something that every believer should look forward to, want to partake in. And so then we should be receptive in embracing God's discipline in our lives because we see what his purposes are. I want to be of good use to him. I want to be fruitful to him. I want to be conformed into his image and be made holy like him. I've got to set my sight squarely upon his loving discipline and kindness in my life that brings that about in his way. Not only, though, does he discipline us generally in that way, but if you will turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he also does discipline us when we have partaken in 
a very per in, in particular sins as well. And, and there's lots of examples of this throughout all of the scriptures. Probably um, the Old Testament is one of the best resources for how God disciplines his people because they have partaken of some particular sin. And you can think of um, Israel and it's just like the running loop of partaking of sins and being disciplined by God. But there's one in particular that I want us to look at when it comes to um, God's loving discipline in our lives when we partake of um, a particular sin by example. And it's the one that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 regarding um, how the church in Corinth was partaking of the Lord's Supper in a way that was in an unworthy manner. And we see a specific example of his loving discipline in, his li in the lives of his people here. Uh, the context, the church in Corinth has got a lot of stuff that is wrong with it. Um, and this is one of those issues. Um, they in their practice of the Lord's Supper, it was, a, it was a meal that they actually partook of together. It was a full-on meal, not like what we do in communion today where we have the juice and the cracker, although that's, there's parallels there, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But they're gathering, the early church is gathering together to partake of a full-blown meal. It's the Lord's Supper. And what's happening in Corinth is that people are gathering together. And before everyone, essentially before everyone gets there, some people are eating. They're eating to excess. They're drinking. They're getting drunk. It's causing divisions. And then those who are, have, have you know, the poor come to the Lord's Supper, the meal together. And they find that the food has already been eaten. The people there, the well-off, are already fat and happy. They're drunk. There's no food left. And they're humiliated when they walk in because they have nothing to partake of. And those who can contribute aren't contributing. They're consuming for themselves. And there's a parallel in this because what Paul is addressing is the issue of the heart. It's not necessarily, uh, it is definitely what they're doing. And this is how it translates over into what we do in communion. Though we don't partake of the Lord's Supper in a full-blown meal, um, what, he, what he's addressing here are the issues of the heart. And that's how it carries over into communion, what, when our communion, what we partake of today and what we partake of every week, because what we partake of and what we address is the heart in our communion time. And so he's addressing them. There's division, there's drunkenness, there's gluttony, there's selfishness, there's humiliation. You see that in verses 17 through 22. He then highlights the communal, selfless nature of the meal, and that that is what we saw in the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 23 through 26. And then in 27 through 32, he addresses the discipline. And the issue really is that they are partaking of the Lord's Supper, the communion time in an unworthy manner. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, this is verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And so then he goes on to describe what is the worthy manner. He says, you are partaking of it in an unworthy way. And then he describes what a worthy way is in verses 28, 29, and 31. This is how we worthily partake of communion, how they were called to worthily partake of the Lord's Supper. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. You're to first examine yourself, to analyze yourself. And he would say in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This word discerning means that there's an intentional deliberation. 
you're examining yourself, you're intentionally deliberating with yourself. And then he would go on and say in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And the judgment is the conclusion that you come to after your deliberation and your examination. So we're called to examine ourselves. We're called to, to discern, to deliberate, to analyze ourselves and where we are spiritually. And after we've made a judgment and we find ourselves that we um, can partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy way, then we partake of it in a worthy way that's pleasing to him. But for those who partake in an unworthy way, this is how we see the discipline of the Lord being laid out. And next week, we're going to talk about the ordinances. We're going to talk about baptism, and we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper some more. So we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more next week. But he talks about the discipline in verses 30 through 32. He says, actually, in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But we, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world. Judgment, you follow his line of thinking there, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. They are partaking of communion, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy way. And he's saying this is, God's, this is how God's disciplining you. Some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have even died because you have partaken of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Verse 31, if we had judged ourselves truly, meaning if you had done the examination, if you had done the deliberation, and you had found that you are not in a position to partake of the Lord's Supper and judged yourself rightly in that way and abstained from partaking of the Lord's Supper, so you would not have done it in an unworthy way, then you would not have been judged. But you have been judged, and he equates judgment with discipline in verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. God's judgment is um, it's an expression of his discipline. And his, and his loving care of discipline in the lives of some of them is that some of them were weak, some of them were deaf, was actually the loving expression of God's discipline in their life. He's not talking to those who are not Christians. He's talking to those who are Christians because God disciplines his children. And he's saying, you have been disciplined as his children, even some of you to the point of death, out of his loving kindness to you. It was actually an expression of God's love for you to die than for him to continue to allow you to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. This is a sobering call for every believer at the seriousness of examining and deliberating and, and judging yourself before we come before the table of the Lord and partake of communion together. 
I think the question that you, the, the question that popped into my mind, which I imagine is in the minds of some of you, is then where is the line between knowing I'm a sinner and needing communion to help me versus being in sin and not partaking of it reverently? Where is the line? I know that I'm a sinner. If I'm, to, if I'm to examine and deliberate within myself, I could probably every week find reason why not to partake of the Lord's Supper. But I need communion. I want to partake of the Lord's Supper in the communion time because it's a means of grace to strengthen me and to help me. I look forward to partaking of this time every week. So where's the line between knowing I'm a sinner and being accepted to the table and being able to partake of the table and still invited to the table versus I should not partake of the table because I do not want to incur the judgment and discipline of God in my life for doing so in an unworthy way. And well, I would say number one is that if you are living in unrepentant, intentional sin, that is certainly one of the reasons to abstain from the Lord's table. If you, are, if you are knowingly and willingly harboring unforgiveness in your heart, if you are intentionally living in sin, I'm talking about where there's, like, there's really no battle in your heart or in your mind going on between the sin in which you're tempted to partake of. You know, you just are, are willingly doing it would certainly be a reason. Personally, I can't tell you because this is exclusively between you and the Lord, for he alone knows. I don't know if you're to partake of communion or not. Um, I do know that I'm called to examine my own heart. I am not excluded from this rule. None of us are. I do know this, and what gets us to our second point, is that um, this is the reason why God gives us church discipline. Leaders practice church discipline to, present, to prevent access to the table, which get, takes us to our second point. Church leaders discipline us. Uh, Paul would tell, write Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, that he has handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. He is that, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That word learn in 1 Timothy 1.20 is the same word for discipline. He would say that they, um, they have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may be disciplined not to blaspheme. blaspheme. And so he uses this as a, an example of these two men, and he passes this down on to Timothy as well for something to, for Timothy to be able to practice. But maybe one of the other, the most, one of the most well-known passages regarding this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you turn there, we'll see Paul's use of discipline in the church and his call for church leaders, as well as the church itself, which we'll get to in our third point. But we just want to focus on the church leaders right now. Paul is, is called to the church leaders to practice church discipline in the life of this man in the church of Corinth. Like I told you, church of Corinth has got a lot of issues. If you read through 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they've got, they're, they're dealing, they're struggling with a lot of stuff. And Paul's love for the church compels him to correct them and to write 
these letters to them. But he tells them um, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that, it is, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. There are unbelievers that don't tolerate what you guys are putting up with. For a man has his own father's wife. So there is a man in the church. He's being allowed to partake in the church, remain in the church, participate in the Lord's Supper, and he is sleeping with his father's wife. And um, Paul is correcting them. And he, and he actually, you see in, in verse 3, pronounces the judgment himself as one who leads the church in Corinth. Uh, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced a judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, same language that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 1, with Hymenaeus and Alexander handing them over, you are to deliver, you are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And, and he would say this to the church in Galatia as well in Galatians 5, 9, repeating this idea that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. God preserves his church. His intent is to preserve his church out of his loving kindness for his church. And there is public, unrepentant, unaddressed, even accepted sin that's going on among you. And it is like, and he is like leaven. He's going to leaven the whole loaf. His sin and um, the church's unwillingness or just unknowing on the call to address this thing is going to spread, and others are going to be able to think that either this conduct is acceptable, that's why the church isn't addressing it, or, hey, he's getting away with it. Maybe we can get away with whatever we want as well. And leaven spreads throughout the whole lump, and his and what Paul's judgment is, is to hand this man over, to remove him from the fellowship. He would go on in verse um, 13. God judges those outside, right? He calls them in verse 12. It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Remove them. Purge them as God's preserving agent of holiness and righteousness, uprightness and integrity, that the bride of Christ is supposed to maintain, that the bride of Christ, the church, might present itself to the world in splendor and holiness and righteousness. The church has its sights set upon holiness and righteousness to such a great degree that when something like this is happening, it's addressed by the church and the man is removed, he's purged from among them for the purpose that he might learn to repent, confess his sin, and return back. And it's actually in 2 Corinthians, um, gives the idea that this man does this. And Paul's admonition to the church in Corinth is, receive him back. He has repented, he has confessed. Bring him back within the fold. I tell you what, the church in God's sight is supposed to be such a necessary, wonderful place to be that when you're removed from it, life is supposed to be like hell. 
to be excluded from the fellowship of God's people, to be denied access to the Lord's table, to be excluded from Christian fellowship. Life is supposed to, life is supposed to be like ridiculously hard. So much so that the eyes of the one who is purged and removed would eagerly desire to be back within loving, caring fold of their people. We've talked about this all the time. You describe the local church as saying, these are my people. Like I couldn't imagine being removed from the fellowship of my people. What if I were cut off and denied access from the rest of you? Like my heart should be broken by that. And at that, being willing to forsake whatever sin had blinded me and whatever I had thought was going to promise me goodness and happiness in its sinfulness had actually robbed me of all those things. I would be so willing to cut that off and leave it behind because I so desire to be back into the fellowship, into the fold, because the church is the loveliest place. It's the most wonderful, beautiful place. It's the garden of God. And I desire to be back among the garden and, and to smell the doctrine of God's flowers and to have that hedge of discipline and protection around me and in my life. That's what Christian life, church community life, is supposed to be. Public sins are dealt with publicly as a means to preserve the church, to discipline the rebellious by the church leaders. And this is hard work. One book that I read said the church discipline, in church discipline, a minister and its elders attempt to make a definitive statement about the hidden inward spiritual state of a church member. They seek to make a judgment about the spiritual kingdom, the realm in which judgment remains hidden until the end times. But clearly they must seek to make this judgment on the basis of what the member has done in the outward kingdom, how he has treated his wife or kids or, or co-workers. Church leaders have a ridiculously hard job when practicing church discipline. This is the reason why we have to be so slow and be so patient and be so prayerful and, and, and gracious and kind because we're seeking to make a judgment based upon the inward, hidden spiritual condition of someone's heart, based upon the way that they're acting publicly with one another, with others. And is this per person unrepentant? And if they are, then the church leaders must move forward to address the unrepentant public sin. Public sins are dealt with publicly. But because of, the re because of the reason why it's so difficult, um, the church is called to be involved in this process as well, not just the leaders. And so we see this in our third point, we discipline one another. We discipline not one another, not only does God discipline us, not only do our leaders discipline us, but we discipline one another. And Matthew 18 is where we want to turn to see this. 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 are probably the two most well-known passages regarding church discipline. And, church, and Matthew 18 is wonderful because it gives, us, it gives us a plan. It gives us steps to walk down to t that must take place in order for church discipline to be done rightly. And we actually see that it involves the church, the congregation as well in church discipline. And you see, in starting in Matthew 18, verse 15, oftentimes it begins between sin, between 
involved in sin that's involved between two people. If your brother sins against you, all right, so he's talking about one-on-one. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't make it public knowledge. If someone sins against you, you just go to them. You don't tell your best friend in the church, and you don't tell other people, and you know, get your little faction and support group going. You go to them one-on-one first. I love, no, I won't go there. You go to them first. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It is possible. You go to a person one-on-one and you say, you have sinned against me. Um, this is what happened. You, walk, you talk through it and someone may go, you know what, you're right. I did. And I see that and I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. Fellowship restored. Sometimes it's just, it's like, you know what? I, did, I didn't even know. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't know, I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to say it that way. I had no idea you're going to take it that way. I'm so sorry. Hey, yeah, we're good. That's ideal. It doesn't always happen that way. Uh, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take two or other Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this is oftentimes where we go wrong. I've gone to the person one-on-one. I've asked, I've shown them their sin. They are unaccepting of it, unrepentant of it. I need to take one or two other people with me. Now, oftentimes this can be church leadership, but it doesn't have to be. The idea here in the word that is often completely missed for some reason is the word witnesses. It's that you can't, just, you can't just go and go, okay, I've gone to this person one-on-one, and I now need to take one or two other people so that it may be established by other witnesses. So either you're going to take other people with you so that they may see for themselves and witness it, or they are people who have witnessed it as well, and you can go to this person lovingly to correct them. It is not, I'm going to go back to my church, I'm going to find my two best friends, and then we're going to go to the, who have no idea of the situation. They haven't witnessed it. They haven't seen it. But I need to take one or two other people. Who better to take with me than the people that are going to believe me and support me and not challenge me in anything? I'm going to go grab my two best friends, and we're going to go and confront this one person. And we're going to do it as a team. And we're going to lovingly confront them and get them to repent of their sin. And that's where I think the church often goes wrong. I know I need to take somebody. Who do I take with me? I'm going to take somebody with me that is going to believe me and who's going to unwaveringly and unswervingly support me no matter what. Forget whether or not this person is actually a witness or going to be a witness. The call is really for the person who is in sin to have their sin exposed by multiple people so that they can lovingly come to them and correct them and and bring them back. Not just so they can gang up on them. But if he refuses to listen to them, say you've done it the right way, refuses to listen to them, you tell it to the church. And this, of course, includes church leadership. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him then be to you as a Gentile. Some of your translations may say pagan and a tax collector. 
there's church involvement here. That there is a multiple, there are multiple witnesses to what it is that has taken place in the church corporately is involved in this process. Luke 17.3 tells us if your brother sins, rebuke him. We're called to confront one another when we see one another living in sin, partaking in sin and rebuke one another. I don't have time, but 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and 15 also says the same thing. And you can look that up and at a later time. Which brings us to the last point, and we discipline ourselves. If we were really disciplining ourselves regularly and rightly, all of this could be avoided, right? For the most part. If I was just in the regular practice of disciplining myself, addressing my own sin, looking at sin as serious as it really is, that's part of the problem with the evangelical church today. We don't even like the word sin. I know, I don't like the word sin either. We don't like using these words, but these are biblical words. We have to call it what it is. If I was in the business of regularly addressing the sin within my own life, regularly keeping short accounts with God and with others, then all of this could be most likely avoided. And so we're given the admonition in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I think a wonderful picture of this is actually back in 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. And I want to read these verses, and this will kind of lead us into uh, our time of communion here. Again, back in the letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. I think a lot of Christians are just happy running because everyone gets a, everyone gets a medal, right? Christians are just happy to run to get like fourth or fifth. Run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And self-control being the key component to being a person that practices self-discipline. You know you're going to actually have to, at times in your life, tell yourself no when you want to tell yourself yes. You're going to feel like doing something or saying something or partaking of something. You're going to feel like it. You may feel like it very, very strongly, but you know it's opposed to God's word. You're actually going to have to tell yourself no. That's called self-control. This is fruit of the Spirit. This is called being, this is just Christian discipline. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
he uses this language of I am, I am disciplining myself so that I can bring my body under control. My thoughts, my words, my feelings, everything is brought into subjection to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, discipline assumes lordship. I don't understand why there is such an issue with lordship in our church culture. Like, lordship is wonderful. It's great. Why would you ever bucket being under the lordship of Christ if you're his child? It, 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 he, 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 his loving kindness and correction is what, is what makes you like him and prepares you to be with him and receives him for all of eternity. Why would I, why would I ever say no? I mean, I get why, because people have their own sinful, selfish, rebellious lusts. We, have, we all have that. But I, I, I want to be like Paul. I want to discipline my body. I want to bring it under control. And when I look at the Lordship of Christ, when I see his beauty, when I see God's his majesty and his holiness, his righteousness, his beauty, his goodness, his loving kindness, when I see everything that is him, and then I see everything that is me, I see this great gap between us, and I wonder, how is it that you could ever love one that is like me? Why would you ever even want to bring me under your discipline? All I deserve and should receive is judgment and being cast away. The fact that you have brought me into a covenant relationship with you by which out of your loving kindness choose to discipline me faithfully, lovingly, consistently is a wonderful gift. And I want to partake in that. I want to be a part of that process in any way that the Lord will allow me to. So I ask myself these questions. Am I a disciplined person? Do I live feelings-oriented, or do I live scripture-oriented? Do, do I use the gifts of confession and repentance that God has given to me when I find myself not living a disciplined life, not agreeing with God's precepts and his word? And do I partake of the wonderful gifts of confession and repentance that he gives to me? Do I see God's discipline as an expression of love? Do you really see discipline as an expression of God's love in your life? Or is it something that you try to avoid? You don't want to talk about. You, you buck against it. The Christian life is about yielding. It's about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's about submitting. It's about being subdued by the loving kindness and the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I see discipline in, his discipline in my life in that way? Do I welcome it? Do I embrace it? Do I despise sin? Do I love holiness? As we prepare to partake of communion together, I, th I think about these things. Um, communion is an opportunity for worship. And all of this even talking about all this discipline and God's preserving work in our lives through it, our hearts, are, have, I, I pray, have been drawn to worship him because of his loving kindness in our lives that he first expressed to us in eternity past in the Lord Jesus when he saved us and that he continues to express to us every single day. 
But do I come to the table with, again, reverence, humility, sobriety, knowing that I'm only invited to the table by the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't offer anything. I, I, don't, have, I, I don't have access to this table by anything of my own merit or goodness. I come to the table based solely upon his invitation to come. And I, so I examine myself. Am I relying upon anything else other than the blood of Christ by which I come? Am I, am I, am I mindful? Am I living deliberately with an unrepentant and unconfessed sin? I know I'm a wicked sinner. I know I need the table, so I partake of it in that way. But am I, is, do I have a spirit of, of withholding, of unsubmissiveness, of rebellion? against him. If so, then perhaps we should not partake. This is a time of worship. This is a time of examination. Thankfully, it's also a time of confession. I find, I examine myself, I deliberate, I find that I have sinned against you, Lord. I've sinned against others. I confess it. I seek to make right and repentance of it and partake of the table. Again, not because I'm worthy, but because the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. And I come on, on his word to be able to. Communion then is also a time of assurance. And I'm assured access to the table, again, not by my own goodness, but by his goodness. And so I joyfully receive the elements and partake of them. So if you are a believer... And you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, then the table is open to you. And for you to do business personally with the Lord on your, your own today. The elements are on the tables behind you. And you can grab those elements and return back to your chair. And this is the reason why we have a few moments of personal examination, confession, before we partake of communion together every single week. We do these things on purpose for this reason. And so the elements are on the table. You can grab them, return back to your seat for so, a few moments of prayer, meditation, and we partake of the elements together shortly.
the communion reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. And Paul would say this, or actually our Lord says this to us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we come to the communion table mindful. We think of what it is that we are holding in our hands right now. These elements of remembrance, these elements of grace that remind us as I, we look upon these elements, we feel them, we taste them, that we come based solely upon the invitation of Christ and upon his work and his merit. Doing so, we, we come humbly, but we come joyfully. This is a time of worship. This is a time of celebration. This is a time where the sinner is reminded of their unworthiness, but of the incredible and sur un the, the, the surpassing love of mercy and grace that's found in Christ that the Father offers to us. And the spirit that seals the believer testifies to our unworthiness, but yet still um, rejoices in that we are sealed and called and that we've been bought by the blood. And so we partake of the cracker together with humility. We partake of the cracker together with sobriety. We partake of the cracker with joy because we are reminded that it represents the body of Christ that was offered up on our behalf, our substitute that received the wrath of God on our behalf so that we might be set free and ever and always have the ever-loving, kind gaze of the Father upon us as his adopted children. And so we partake of the cracker together in that way. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so again, we partake of the juice together. Christ has shed his blood, washes us clean, purifies us, sets us apart as a people for God that he is preserving. We partake of the juice again with humility, sober-minded, but with joy and thankfulness, gratitude to the loving kindness and the securing, assuring work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. We persevere and we are preserved because he preserves us and his hand is upon us and holds us and no one and nothing can ever snatch us from his hand. And so we partake of the juice together in remembrance of these things. Father, you've given us these elements to partake of. None of us worthy. If you were to count our sins against us, Lord, nobody would stand. But we come proclaiming the finished work of Christ. We boast in him and in him alone. His blood has washed us. His body has been offered up for us. And your gift of communion, the Lord's Supper, these elements are helpful because they remind us of his goodness 
remind us of our unworthiness, and it fills us with gratitude. It fills us with worship. And so we come with hearts. Lord, I pray after communion that are full, full of gratitude and full of thankfulness and worship to you. And so we look to you and we turn to you to worship you now. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.